Morning, everybody. So how many of you guys are ordinarily first service people who decided today was a good day just to try out second service for a while? Like, see what second service is like. I don't know why, but today seems like a good day for that. Welcome, first service people. Hopefully today you might get to meet brothers and sisters who are part of your church family that you've never seen before. Um, so that's, that is one of the cool things about mixing it up every once in a while. Welcome. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing through our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, you've hopefully seen that there is a theme that's been developing and kind of building up steam over the last several stories. And it's a theme that finds a, a culminating moment in today's story. And so to make sure that we see that when it happens, I want to walk back through some of the recent stories that we've looked at. It all started with the Sermon on the Mount, where we, we spent several weeks going through Jesus's teaching. And this is Jesus on a mountaintop giving the authoritative teaching of what God's moral law is. And then when he comes down from the mountain, we talked about how he's revealed in that moment as a Moses-type figure that he's the new authoritative leader over Israel. And so you're immediately kind of drawn into asking, to ask, well, what is he going to do next? Right after that, we had three different healings, and all of them were unique and specifically designed to show different aspects of what Jesus is about. First, he heals a man with leprosy, which would have made that man ceremonially unclean in the Jewish world, and yet Jesus reaches out and touches him to heal him. And then he healed the servant of a centurion, a soldier with authority in the, the army of Rome, the mortal enemy of Israel. And then he heals a woman with a fever. And so right after that, gets on the boat with his disciples and they head across the Sea of Galilee and on the way, a massive storm whips up and there are wind and waves and the disciples are terrified and think that they're gonna die until Jesus speaks a word to the wind and the waves and the storm is silent. So they go across the sea and they end up in the Gentile territory where they encounter a demon-possessed man. And this is not just an ordinary demon-possessed man, but this is like a like maximally demon-possessed, terrifying man. And Jesus, again, without any kind of like fancy tricks or rituals or magical items, he just speaks to the demons and the man is delivered. And so what you're seeing in story after story after story is different aspects of the authority of Jesus. He comes down from the mountain with authority over God's law. He displays his authority over uncleanness, over Jew and Gentile, over male and female. He displays his power and authority even over like the physical created world, the wind and the waves, the forces of chaos. And then finally, he displays his authority over the spiritual realm, that even this evil spirits have to obey his authority. And today, we're going to see the story that brings this together to its kind of like climactic moment where you see Jesus' authority. And here's the thing. On the surface, especially if you're reading through the text, today's story where Jesus heals a man who's paralyzed, spoiler alert, that's what happens, it doesn't feel intuitively to us as modern readers like it should be the climactic moment of Jesus displaying his authority. If you're reading through the story, you're like, wait, I mean, like there were some healings. Then he's like commanding wind and waves and like facing off against demons and stuff. And so how, is it, how does it make sense that the climactic moment would be another healing, healing a paralyzed man? I mean, that's great, but how is it the main thing? But hopefully what we'll see when we walk through this and try to kind of see it, first of all, through the first century Jewish eyes of the people who were there to see this and the first people who read this story and heard this story, and then also just through truly understanding what it is that Jesus is doing I think hopefully we'll all see this is absolutely the climactic moment that it's supposed to be in the text. 
So it starts like this. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So he's been in Gentile territory. He gets back in the boat, goes back across the Sea of Galilee, back into Jewish territory, which is very important. It says he goes to his own city, which at this point in Jesus' ministry is Capernaum, a city in Galilee. And so he's there, and Matthew sums up in one sentence a story that we get way more details on in a couple of the other gospel accounts. Matthew just says, some people brought to him a paralytic. Now, some of you will be familiar already with the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And here's the way Mark describes the story. It's unbelievable. It's one of those things where you really have to, to put yourself there with your imagination. So what Mark tells us, it's the exact same thing. Jesus comes back across the sea, goes into a house in Capernaum, and Mark tells us that the house is packed with people. And a house in this area at this time would have held 40, maybe 50 people. So picture just packed out all the way full. No one can get in. Like you try to get into the doorway, you can't get past the giant crowd. Everyone's there to hear Jesus teach and maybe see him do some miracles. And so what happens in Mark's account is that the friends who bring the paralytic, Mark tells us there's four of them, they come carrying their friend on the mat and they don't do what you or me would probably do. They don't go like, well... We can't get in, so like maybe tomorrow we could see if Jesus is teaching somewhere else, like try to get here earlier next time or something maybe. Like what we would do is something reasonable, right? What these friends do is they go up on the roof of the house, which would have been accessible at this point in, in history. That's the outside roof of the house was kind of like an area you could go to hang out and cool off in the evening. So they go up on the roof and they literally dig a hole into the roof and drop their friend down, lower their friend down in front of Jesus. So you read that, but you got to pause and think about what's happening. You're in this packed out house hearing Jesus teach, and all of a sudden it's like there's like dirt and twigs and stuff falling into the room. And then it's like a lot of dirt and twigs and stuff are falling into the room. And then all of a sudden there's this massive hole in someone else's house, by the way. Not the four, it's not their house. They go on the roof and commit some light understandable property damage, and then lower their friend. And then this paralyzed man is lowered down in front of Jesus. It's an absolutely incredible moment. But before we see what Jesus does, we have to do a little bit of work to understand what this paralyzed man's experience of life would have been like. I mean, it's pretty intuitive to know that you would have a difficult life if you were paralyzed, right? And in any culture at any time, this is a, a difficult, horrible thing to have to experience and deal with. But in the ancient world, if you're paralyzed, it means, first of all, you can't work. And if you can't work, that means you can't get married. And if you can't get married, that means you can't have children. And again, depending on who you are, that, that's still a difficult and painful thing in today's world. But in the ancient world, to be a man who can't provide, who is not married, and who is not having offspring to carry on the family's legacy would be seen as just horrible, just crushing for this guy's life. I mean, he probably felt absolutely worthless in his culture. There's actually something even worse than that about this guy's life. It has to do with something called retribution theology. So in the time of Jesus in the Jewish world, it was very common standard belief to believe in something called retribution theology. And the simplest, like overly simple way to explain it is retribution theology says you get exactly what you deserve. So picture like karma, except it's karma with God being the agent of it. So a lot of Jesus' peers would have believed, most of them would have believed some level of, hey, if you're suffering, guess what? That means you made a mistake. 
and you're being punished for it. Now, just to be clear, there's some nuance here. I mean, sometimes we do suffer as a direct result of, of sins we committed and mistakes we make. But there was a black and white, you know, A plus B equals C kind of rigidity to this system that you suffer proportionate to the sins that you've committed. And there's a direct causal relationship between them. You see this in John's gospel in John chapter 9. Jesus and some of the disciples are going into the temple and they pass by a guy who was born blind. He's been blind for his whole life. And Jesus' disciples are kind of arguing and debating among themselves. And the debate they're having is, is this guy born blind because of a sin he committed or because of a sin that his parents committed? You notice there's no like third option. It's not like, hey, is he born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin or maybe something else? They just assume somebody had to sin. And the whole book of Job is about this. It's one of the kind of primary focal points of that book, at least. Job is this guy who is righteous. You as the reader know that. But he starts suffering horrible things. And all of his friends who come to comfort him end up over and over again accusing him and saying, hey, listen, look at the suffering in your life. This obviously means that you are a sinner. You're unrighteous. You've done horrible things, and that's why all of this has happened to you. So imagine, if you are the paralyzed man, everywhere you go, you are marked by guilt and sin. Everyone who sees you in your culture goes, oh, man, wonder what that guy did. wonder what that guy's parents did. That's not completely unrelatable, right? Most of us keep that kind of more internal and we don't have to like externalize it in this sort of a scarlet letter kind of way. But we know what it feels like to feel guilt and shame and like you're marked by God for suffering because of something you've done. Most Christians wouldn't say they believe in retribution theology, but there's this kind of instinct towards karma. You know what I mean? Makes you think like, oh man, I've really got it coming now. This guy's whole life would have been characterized by that, and it's inescapable. He's lying on a mat begging, probably, because he can't work, and everyone who passes him by goes like, oh, man, that's, I wonder what happened with that guy. I wonder what his deal is. And that makes his friends even more impressive in some ways, because these are guys who are going way, way above and beyond to help their friend. Even this guy who, who would not necessarily have had that many connections and so this sentence, unbelievably deep, just for one sentence, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The first half of this is the, exactly the kind of thing where when you're reading scripture, you just read it and don't even notice how odd it is. I mean, it doesn't say that Jesus saw his faith and responded to it. Now, that's what happens in a lot of healing stories in the gospels. Jesus will heal someone and he'll say what? Your faith has made you well. That's already mysterious. But this time it says he saw their faith. And the obvious reference for that is th these four friends. Mark tells us there's four of them. Now, it might also have included the paralytic, but primarily this is about the friends. So what did Jesus see? And this brings us back to just a couple of weeks ago. Isaac was talking about the centurion and his servant and how faith is more than just like an intellectual affirmation of something. This isn't about what these guys are thinking, at least not primarily. When Jesus sees their faith, what he saw was what they did. That's very, very different. Now, obviously, their actions are motivated by some sense of expectation that Jesus can do something to help their friend. But the point is, it doesn't stay just at the level of an intellectual idea. Maybe Jesus can help him and we should pray for him. It also says, 
hey, we got to go on the roof and break a hole in this guy's ceiling because we think Jesus can do something about this. It's incredible. And so you see how their faith becomes the thing that Jesus responds to in healing the man. And we're so like individualistic as a culture that that strikes many of us as being really, really weird. But it's infinitely practical. I mean, their faith is without question literally the reason why this guy gets healed, right? Jesus does the healing, but how does this guy get in front of Jesus? He couldn't do it by himself. He needed the faith of his friends to carry him there. And probably he also needed the faith of his friends to encourage him and strengthen him and help him to not give up hope after such a difficult and shame-filled life. I mean, do you really think this is the very first time these guys have helped their friend out? Like the first time they ever step up to help him is the time they go break someone's roof? You know, you have to imagine this guy has a difficult life, and these are probably the very people who carry him from place to place so we can get good opportunities to make money, probably carry him around and try to keep him encouraged that, hey, don't give up. There's a good chance these are the guys who said, there's a healer named Jesus in town. We got to go. And it's such a beautiful picture for us, I think, of, of what the community of faith is supposed to be like. That you need, in a more literal, practical way than we usually think, you need your brothers and sisters to have faith for you sometimes, to have hope for you sometimes, to carry you into the presence of Jesus sometimes when you are too weak or too hopeless or in too much despair. Then Jesus turns his attention to the paralyzed man. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's really tempting at this point in the story, and many of you have probably heard the story told this way, it's really tempting to read this part and be like, man, the paralytic must have been really disappointed. Because he must have been like, well, thanks for forgiving my sins, but what I really would like is to be able to walk again. So like, thanks, but that's not really what I'm here for. But to read the story that way completely misses all the stuff we just talked about, right? I mean, what is this guy's life characterized by? Yes, he's suffering physically, but he's walking around feeling the shame and guilt, this being marked by sin and iniquity. And so Jesus sees him and identifies immediately exactly what this guy's problem is, what his primary problem is. His main problem is that he feels cursed by God, unloved by God, like a sinner. And Jesus tells him, take heart, my son. By the way, that word for son, it's incredibly unique in the New Testament. This is actually the only time in the entire New Testament when Jesus uses this word to speak to an individual person. So there's a couple of spots where Jesus refers to all of the disciples as my sons using the same word, but this is literally the only time that he calls one person my son using this word. And it's a really like deeply affectionate, familial, warm, loving term. It's a term of endearment. My little son, have courage. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows exactly what this guy needs. And then like incredibly unsurprisingly, some people don't like this, right? And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So we already established Jesus is in a very busy house. A lot of people have come to hear him. Some of them are probably genuinely like seeking some powerful teaching. Some of them, like these scribes, are probably more at arm's distance going, let's see what this is all about. These are the Bible experts of the day. These are the scholars. 
They know Judaism. They know the Jewish scripture. And they're here to evaluate. We've heard a lot about this guy. Let's just see if he's on the up and up or not. And when Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, they immediately go to themselves. This guy's blaspheming. This guy is degrading the name of God. I mean, blasphemy. That, this is a heavy accusation. And why? Why is this blasphemous in their minds? And on the surface, the most kind of obvious reason, and this is what Mark says specifically, is that he's blaspheming, they, they think, because only God can forgive sins. And that's absolutely 100% true. But the threat that this pronouncement of forgiveness represents is actually bigger than that. Bigger, bigger, believe it or not, than just taking the place of God and pronouncing forgiveness. See, if you're a Jewish person in this time, you're a faithful Jewish person, there is absolutely a means for you to have your sins forgiven. A lot of the time as Christians, we don't think that. We kind of think that like, you know, everybody's waiting and then forgiveness, the only experience of forgiveness they could have is when Jesus finally comes. Of course, that's, that is the ultimate act of forgiveness. But there is a means for the faithful Jew to be forgiven. It's recorded in Leviticus 4. So if you want to read something super fun and exciting, you can go double check this later today. But here's what would happen. You got to realize the people who are accusing Jesus of blasphemy and many of the other people in the room had done probably many times exactly what I'm about to describe. So according to Leviticus 4, you're a faithful Jew, you want to be faithful to Yahweh, and you, re and you realize that you've sinned in some way, some way that's significant enough that you need to go deal with it. And the text is actually clear. It doesn't even have to be like you realizing it. It could be that you realized you sinned, or it could be that someone points out, hey, what you did, that's sin. You need to deal with that. And if you wanted to have that sin forgiven, this is what you would do. You would take a lamb or a sheep, depending on your kind of financial level and your social status, you take one of those two animals, or if you had to travel a long way, you would take the money to purchase one, and you would travel however many miles it was from you to the temple. And for some people in Israel, that could be 100 miles. And we don't have cars in the first century, right? So you've got to imagine the long journey that someone would have taken. I mean, if somebody was going to go to the temple from where Jesus is in this story, that's 70 miles. Walking with your little goat, right? So you go to the temple, thinking probably the whole way there about your sin and how it needs to be dealt with, and you would arrive at the temple and you'd get in line with a bunch of other people standing there with sheep and goats, and you'd wait for your turn to approach the altar where the priest is. And when it was your turn, unless you were the very first person to get there that day, unless you are the very first one, the priest would come out with white robes just completely stained with blood. Picture like going to an old school butcher shop or something. The priest comes out covered with blood, takes your animal, you pronounce your sin, and the priest would kill the goat in your presence and drain its blood into a bowl. And he would take some of that blood and he'd put it on the corners of the altar, and then he would take the rest and he would pour it out before the altar, pour out the blood of the animal. Then they'd separate out some different parts of the animal and burn the majority of it on the altar. And then the priest would tell you that your sins were forgiven. Can you imagine the connection that you would make, the, like the tangible, visceral connection between your decisions, your sin, your actions, and what it takes for them to be forgiven? 
Can you imagine the relief? This is so counterintuitive to us because we as modern people hear that story or that kind of ritual and we go like, oh, that must have been such a huge burden. They did not think it was a burden. It was a gift. It was like our God loves his people so much that he's provided this means of us being made right with him. We can actually approach God and, and have a definitive moment of forgiveness. And when that animal dies and is burned, you could feel the tangible, it's done, the job's done. I did the thing I had to do. And so Jesus, 70 miles from the temple, no sacrifice in sight, not a priest, not only not a priest, he's not even a Levite, he's not even from the right tribe to be a priest. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes understandably go, hold on a second. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the priest? Where's the temple with the presence of God? immediately there. How can you, a rabbi in Galilee, just tell this guy his sins are forgiven? Haven't you read the Bible? Who do you think you are? Where's the priest? Where's the sacrifice? Where's the temple? Jesus is bypassing that entire system that had been in place for 1,500 years at this point and taking it upon himself. And at this point, when, when they kind of, you know, in their hearts accuse him of blasphemy, Jesus does the classic Jesus thing, and he doesn't walk it back or nuance it or try to, like, clear the air or get along with everybody. He just doubles down like crazy. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? So he doesn't come back and go like, oh, guys, I'm not, blasphem I'm not blaspheming. Let me be clear, you scribes will get this. I'm actually the promised Messiah, and it turns out the Messiah is actually God. So no problem. He doesn't do any of that. He goes, you guys are thinking evil. I didn't do something evil. You are. For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Let's take an informal poll. How many of you think it's easier <laughs> to say to someone your sins are forgiven? How many of you guys have no interest in declaring your position on this publicly? <laughs> there really, I really think there's no, there's no right answer here. Or it's more, more that if you understand it right, there's two right answers. Jesus goes, what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your mat and walk? Now, on the surface, no question. It's way easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to fact check that, right? So he could say your sins are forgiven and there's not like, Facebook's not gonna like flag the post and be like, oh, independent fact checkers have <laughs> determined that his sins are not actually forgiven. So there's no way to check his work. So on the surface, it'd be way harder to say take up your mat and walk. But the scribes know, and Jesus knows, that when it comes to actually forgiving sin, that is infinitely more difficult than telling someone to stand up and take their mat and walk. And by the way, they're not even two separate things. Because remember, if you believe in retribution theology, this guy's physical condition is wrapped up in his sin. You have to do both. So Jesus says, which one's easier? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And the crowd that wouldn't part to let him in, parts to let him out. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. That can mean fearful or awestruck or more likely kind of all of that together. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. See that twice in that paragraph. Jesus says, this is so that you will know that I have authority to forgive sins. 
And when the crowd responds to it, they worship and glorify God because of the authority that they see in Jesus, because he has this authority on earth. The story is eight verses. It's really short. And yet in this story, you are seeing the culmination or a culmination of that theme of Jesus establishing his authority over the spiritual world, over cleanness and uncleanness, over male and female and Jew and Gentile and the law itself and the forces of nature and evil spirits. He's got his authority established clearly and the the pinnacle of that theme. It's not just about healing someone with paralysis. It's about saying that priest and that sacrifice and that temple, it's right here. I'm not just bypassing the system. I am he toward whom the system has been pointing the entire time. And so you see, again, in this incredibly short story, the clearest example you get of what true authority looks like. Jesus has demonstrated authority over everything. And here it's even over the Levitical priests, the temple itself, the sacrificial system. And what you don't get is like a domineering, let me just push everybody around and put these scribes in their place. No, what he does with his authority is he sees a man who is suffering, who has felt like a sinner for his whole life, and he says, my son, be brave. Your sins are forgiven. He sees a suffering man and meets his needs. That's what the authority of Jesus looks like when it's enacted in reality. The other thing you get in the story is this incredibly powerful image. We talked about it a little bit earlier of what faith actually looks like. Faith is not an individual game. Again, we're so individualistic that we think like faith is this thing that you have in your room when you're reading your Bible and praying. And praise God, reading your Bible and praying alone is a good thing, of course. But faith and Christianity in general, it's been a team sport from the beginning. And the faith that Jesus sees and that he responds to in this moment is not beliefs people have in their head, it's actions they take. You want to know what you believe? Don't look at what you think, look at what you do. And it's meant to take place in community. And if you've been a Christian a long time, you know what I'm talking about. You've probably experienced that at some point, where your faith was like this thin. And if it was just up to you and kind of willing yourself to believe harder, it would have fallen apart. But brothers and sisters who loved you came around you and like the paralytic lifted you up. Maybe you've done that for someone else. I'll tell you the simplest kind of like most basic example of this that happens every single week. I am kind of like by temperament and disposition or whatever. When I arrive at church, much of the time, I don't walk in like ready to sing worship songs, like, like I'm just raring to sing songs of joy and hope. Like I'm too busy-minded, I'm too like concerned with the logistics of what's going on in church, whatever I have to do that day. I don't come in like, yes, I can't wait to sing. Now, ideally, I would. And, and by God's grace, more and more, I'm growing in that area. But it's not my natural disposition. But what happens week after week, praise God, is that the music starts and I hear you guys singing. I hear brothers and sisters declaring with their mouths their faith in Jesus, their love for Jesus. I see hands go up. And it's like, 
It's like I'm that guy getting lifted up by his friends. And all of a sudden, I'm like, of course this is what I want to do. What else could I want to do this morning than sing with my brothers and sisters about the goodness of God? But I need you guys. I really do. I'm not just saying that. Week after week, I need you guys to sing with me and to sing for me and to to bring me into that. And again, if you've been a Christian a long time, by God's grace, you've probably experienced even more dramatic versions of that. So you've got to ask yourself, how is your faith being expressed communally? Are there people in your life who need you to bring your faith to bear on their situation, who need to be carried into the presence of Jesus in some way. It could literally just be that you've got someone in your life who just wants a friend, and man, if you said, let's go to church on Sunday and go to lunch afterwards, that's what it would take to carry them into the presence of Jesus that day. Take that seriously. And for your brothers and sisters who you know, when you see faltering faith, know that part of what you are called to do is step into that situation and bring your faith into that situation. Bonhoeffer talks about how sometimes the Christ in the mouth of your brother is stronger than the Christ in your heart. And he doesn't mean the actual Christ, the person. He means that your, your own kind of internalized feeling of faith it can be weak and falter, and being, having the gospel spoken to you by a brother or sister can be the strength that you need. So take that seriously. And finally, you see in this story what true forgiveness really looks like for this man who had spent his entire life marked by guilt and shame, a daily reminder of God's curse upon him. It's probably how he saw it. And like I said earlier, we're not necessarily people who believe explicitly in karma or retribution theology, but we feel the weight of guilt. We absolutely do. Some of us more than others, but man, every single one of us knows what it feels like to be marked by your mistakes and your misdeeds and the ways that you have mistreated people and manipulated people and contributed to the chaos and disorder and evil of the world that you live in. It's natural to carry that weight of guilt with you. It may not be external the way it was for the paralyzed man, but we feel that. It made me think this week of uh, Lady Macbeth. Anybody read Macbeth before? Anybody forced to read Macbeth in high school? That might be the honest way to say it. Macbeth is one of those plays, though, where like, I was in high school and I was like, I have to read a Shakespeare play right now. And then you start reading Macbeth and you're like, this is dark, this is good. It's a good play, highly recommend What happens in Macbeth is that Macbeth, the main character, and Lady Macbeth, his wife, conspire to murder someone. And as Lady Macbeth starts losing her sanity, she gets this belief in her head that her hands are covered in blood and she can't wash them off. And no matter how much she tries to wash her hands, she still sees a blood stain on it. So you get her saying this, you know, out spot, out spot. Who would have known the old man could have so much blood in him? And it's because she can't get past the guilt of what she's done. You know what that feels like. The other thing that that, that example immediately made me think of is the, the story, the Edgar Allan Poe story of the telltale heart. You probably also were forced to read that in high school at some point. If you're not, shame on your English department. <laughs> in the telltale heart, there's a man who murders someone. By the way, I apologize for how much murder the end of the sermon has in it. I didn't realize... <laughs> I didn't realize until first service, I was like, how many times are we going to talk about like horrible murders? And 
So he, he murders someone, and he gets away with it. No one sees, no one knows, and he buries the body under the floorboards of his house. But what starts happening? He can hear the heartbeat of the body under the floorboards. And it gets louder and louder, and it won't leave him alone. And what a powerful image of guilt, right? Whether other people see it or not, you know deep down inside of you that you're marked by that. We feel that blood on our hands, that beating heart. And so the question that this story makes us ask and the relief that the story can give to us is to see the forgiveness of Jesus poured out on this person who that was his whole reality. Jesus doesn't start by healing his legs. He gives him the thing he needs even more than that. He says, your sins are forgiven. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the priest? Where's the temple? Standing in front of the paralytic telling him he's forgiven. The author of Hebrews makes that same point, and he, he makes that point spread out across like 10 beautiful chapters that are complex and kind of like weaving together this tapestry of all the things that Jesus is. And the author of Hebrews wants you to know like, Jesus is, is the true Moses. He's also the fulfillment of the law and the temple and the sacrifice and the high priest. He's everything. He's, he's showing you thing after thing after thing that Jesus is, that he comes as the fulfillment of all of this stuff. And that section comes to a point right here. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, <laughs> this book is so cool. I'm not going to do this for the whole thing, but just two right there in the first sentence. He says, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's the very center of the temple where the presence of Jesus was uniquely manifest. And no one could go in there except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He goes, we can confidently enter that. Why? Because the curtain that used to separate that from you has been opened. And what was it? The body of Jesus. It's so cool, you guys. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the priest? Where's the temple? The author of Hebrews is like, it's Jesus. All of it was about Jesus from the beginning. That's how you have a full assurance of faith. Sprinkled clean, your conscience cleaned, washed with water. And look how he applies it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the author of Hebrews makes this straight line connection between Jesus as the sacrifice that forgives sins, that cleanses you, that cleans your conscience. That is directly connected in his mind to your participation in the community of believers. What do you do when you have that forgiveness? Well, you join with other people who have shared that forgiveness and you lift each other up and you spur each other on to good works. You become, in other words, like those four friends who carried the paralytic into the presence of God. And here's the thing. You still might feel like that's all really cool and interesting. Maybe you think that. But how do I know that I'm forgiven. I want you to think about that Jewish man who takes his lamb, walks to the temple, 
sees the blood poured out before the altar, hears that he's forgiven, and has this direct, physical, visceral connection to the cost of his forgiveness and the fact that it's real I mean, it's tangible. This is one of the chief reasons why we gather together every week, to have that same experience, to be brought directly, bodily, to this unbelievably powerful reminder of what Jesus has done for you, that your forgiveness is not arbitrary, but was paid for. When we do this, we get that same opportunity to have that direct connection to the means of your forgiveness. How do you know you're forgiven? You remember the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And you remember that it's not just an arbitrary, random thing that you can walk out of at any minute. No, this is paid in full, purchased for you at great cost. And so you take it to the bank, and week after week, you gather together, and you remind yourself, it's done, it's finished, it's over, I'm clean, I'm forgiven. And whatever my heart tells me in the middle of the night when I'm feeling guilty and ashamed, I remember it's not about how I feel about this. You kidding me? It's about the fact that it happened. And if you entrust yourself to Jesus, you're forgiven. I can tell you that. I can't forgive you. But I get the blessing today of telling you, you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven. It's real. Your hands are clean. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to read... Normally we just say this, but because of how powerful the connection is, I want to actually read with you what Jesus said on the night that he established this meal. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, said, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Like the blood before the altar in the temple, the blood of Jesus has been poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. If you trust in Jesus, you are forgiven, period. Remember together. Father, I, I am, uh, well, you know, you know me, and you know how much throughout my life this very thing has been a struggle of having a, a deep feeling of being convinced of the truth of your forgiveness for me, of believing it in my brain, but, but having such a hard time connecting with it in my gut, Lord. And so I thank you for this beautiful gift you've given us of this sacrament that we take together and remember and connect to the death of your son, Jesus. That your forgiveness for every person in here who trusts in you has nothing to do with how strong their faith is, but has everything to do with where they place it. So Lord, I pray you will help every single believer in this room to have a deep and abiding sense of having been forgiven. And that they would, just as the author of Hebrews says, that they would take that forgiveness and let it propel them on into building one another up. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.